If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior, Christ, and Lord. You know, there's sometimes for a title for a message, there's nothing better than the names of Jesus himself. And certainly with his birth, uh, we want to glorify and honor him in every way we can. And I've divided the text into three sections that we'll look at this morning, the decree, the delivery, and the declarations. The decree, the delivery, and the declarations, plural, because there's two of them. First the angels and then the shepherds. What starts off here is uh, Luke, again, with his attention to detail, and, and Luke being the physician that he was, and uh, wanting to make sure that you understood the historical context, what was going on, what the time period uh, was when Jesus comes into the world. He lets us understand why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, why he ended up in, why he was born in Bethlehem, because obviously uh, his parents were not living in Bethlehem at the time, but they had to traverse and head down there. And he gives us the reason why this is. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went from Caesar Augustus, and that was rendered, as you heard in the Hebrew, the emperor Caesar, or emperor Augustus, I should say. This decree that goes out from Caesar that everyone in the Roman Empire is to be counted, every single individual under Roman authority. And we know that, of course, Rome had great portions of Europe on the north, and then they had portions of the Middle East, and then they had portions of North Africa, so that the three great continents, Rome had control of Europe, Middle East, and North Africa, portions of three great continents all coming together, and he wants all of the empire to be counted, and ultimately this count would lead to a tax. Once they knew the number, there'd be a tax assessment. Always seems to go that way, doesn't it? Don't worry, we just want to know the following questions. It's later there'll be a tax. And that certainly was going to take place as well. But I'm not sure how familiar you, how familiar you are with Caesar Augustus. But it's interesting, and more than interesting, it's noteworthy that Jesus, coming down from the everlasting kingdom of God, was born during Caesar Augustus' reign. Caesar Augustus was the first emperor and was the founder of what we now refer to as the Roman Empire. Just before him was Julius Caesar. All heard of him, right? He was a great military man. Cruel at times. Kind at times. Kind of like a mafia boss, right? Cruel at times. Kind at times. But Julius Caesar was before him, and Julius Caesar had been given a uh, dictator for life, but he was assassinated. Remember that on the Eids of March, or the Ides of March, he was assassinated. Um, and that was, he would have been the first great emperor, but he wasn't. Julius Caesar was kind of the forerunner, the forerunner to the actual first emperor of the Roman Empire. So when Caesar Augustus comes into power, the approximate 500 years before, all the way up through Julius Caesar, the 500 years prior, the Roman uh, kingdom 
had been a republic, albeit a very aggressive republic. It wasn't like a, a benevolent republic. It was a republic that still was advancing and taking other lands. Julius Caesar himself led the campaigns against the Gauls, which would be in France, and, and took all that area. But Caesar, Augustus, in 27 BC, took control as the Roman Empire's very first recognized emperor, Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, and he was granted what would amounted to as total control by the Roman Senate and members of the ruling class. He, posi he positioned, this is what Caesar Augustus did, Caesar Augustus, he was a very shrewd man, he positioned the Roman Senate, the magistrates, and the legislative assemblies with a facade of governing power. Wow, I'm glad that stuff doesn't happen anymore, right? With a facade of power. He made sure that they still had a front. Each of the, each of the uh, groups of former, again, the Senate, the magistrates, legislative assemblies, again, they would vote, and they were the ones that conferred this absolute dictatorial power to him. But in reality, even though he had them still positioned with a facade of power, he ruled with absolute authority. He received a collection of powers for life, including the supreme military commander, tribune, and censor, which gave him, and he used this power, to command a worldwide census. Uh, again, that worldwide was the ro known Roman world. There was certainly other people outside of that, but... Uh, but this worldwide census obviously impacted who? Joseph and Mary, because they were in the confines of the Roman Empire. Caesar was born Gaius Octavian. Most people don't refer to him as that, right? Caesar Augustus would be the name he'd later have, but he was born Gaius Octavian. He was later adopted posthumously by his great uncle, Gaius Julius Caesar, whom the people loved and adored. And this followed Julius Caesar's assassination. He had no idea that he was the heir to Julius Caesar until after his uncle's death and the contents of the will were revealed. Then he finds out, he named me? The great nephew? The heir to Julius Caesar? He was a young, he was a teenage, 17 to 18 years of age. Uh, he was in training both scholastically and military, uh, by, anyone's, uh, by anyone's kind of observation at that time, he was a weakling. He was not some great powerful emperor. But like so many men that rise to great heights, he had it up here where he didn't have it here. Shrewd, calculating, understood how people actually think. Not what they say, but actually what they really think understood how gullible people are. He had all those characteristics, and he used them all well. Of course, he was given all the, he was given all the uh, title and all of the wealth and everything from Julius Caesar. He finds this out after the contents of the will are revealed. He actually convinces, he convinces a number of the troops, uh, the number that I've read was about 3,000 um, troops that were loyal to Julius Caesar 
to embrace him and to kind of be, they'd have his back because he would have to push his way up into power. And as he has that initial group uh, that get behind him, prior to becoming emperor, he, and being, prior to becoming emperor and later being named Caesar Augustus, young Octavian, he added to his own name, Divi Filius, which means son of the divine. He added that to his name, and obviously the divine, in this case, he's referring to Julius Caesar, who the people deified. They, they loved Julius Caesar. He had, been, he had brought, brought great wealth and additional power to Rome, but Caesar Augustus would be the first emperor. So he said, I'm son of the divine, divine being his great uncle, Julius Caesar. Augustus was later given to him by the Roman Senate. So this title, Augustus, uh, was later given to him by the ruling class, by the Senate, and this word Augustus means great or venerable or exalted one. How about that? His name, the title they gave him was exalted one. Augustus is derived from the Latin word agure, which means to increase. Keep all this in mind. Interesting, the, the names that he was given, son of the divine, that he gave to himself, exalted one that was given to him. He, as I mentioned, he was a shrewd politician, understanding what people think is more important than reality. He rejected titles, at least outwardly. He did receive the one Augustus, and he did give himself son of the divine, but other names, what they wanted to just call him emperor and things like that, he outwardly rejected titles, and instead he called himself princeps civitus, which means first citizen. That's what he referred to. He, was the, he called himself the first citizen, a man of the people he would identify himself as. Now, under Caesar Augustus' rule and consolidation of power began a 200-year period of relative peace throughout the empire known, as you probably heard this word, Pax Romana. You ever heard that word, term? Pax Romana. It began a 200-year uh, period of relative peace known even today as Pax Romana, which I believe is very falsely glorified. Why would I say that? Well, under his rule, this 200 years of peace, of course, he wouldn't live that long. Many other Roman empire, em, emperors would come after him during that 200-year period, most of them uh, in the same family line. But Pax Romana, or Roman peace, <laughs> wasn't so peaceful if you were a slave, wasn't so peaceful if you were a lower class, it didn't really end up, end up really peaceful for John the Baptist or Jesus crucified on Golgotha, did it? Or how about the thousands of Christians that would be slaughtered under Pax Romana? You know, I was watching, a, a, I like history anyway. Even if I wasn't a pastor, I still like to study history. History is even more important when you study the Bible to understand the context around things. But I was watching a history 
uh, program recently about Pax Romana. They were actually, it was on maybe the History Channel, some of you may have seen it, it was just in the last month or so, and they were talking about Pax Romana. And the 200 years of supposed general peace, it was fascinating to watch today's highly educated scholars and professors wax poetic about Pax Romana, as if you would really have loved to live then. I guess you would if you were at the top of the heap, the top of the social class, and even there, that was a precarious position because of backbiting, backstabbing, even Julius Caesar himself was assassinated, as I already mentioned, so that wasn't necessarily so great. But again, if you're a slave, lower class, and certainly a Christian later on, oh, just to be torn apart by lions in the Roman Colosseum. But they didn't talk about that on the History Channel. That was just kind of brushed aside. It was the beautiful pottery and the Roman columns and the beautiful ornate, and I, you know, when we were in Israel and we, we toured you know, some of the ruins of Caesarea and Bet Shen and all these places, yeah, there's beautiful, but behind it all is the iron fist of the Roman Empire. Not so beautiful, not so peaceful to everybody. Not for Christians, not for many. Now Augustus, he was widely considered... Understand this, Augustus was widely considered the greatest, and still is to this day, most would consider him the greatest of all Roman emperors. And the Roman Empire is widely considered by most historians as the most powerful and influential empire the world has ever seen. Yes, I know that there's been landmass, the Mongol Empire was bigger, the Ming Dynasty was great. The Egyptian empire was great. I mean, in their own right. But none, none have had the wide-ranging influence, and it's rather undisputable in many respects, as the Roman Empire. We still have it all around us today. We still say words like this, phrases like this. All roads lead to Rome. When in Rome do us the... You all know these things. And right in Richmond, we have the Richmond Coliseum, the Los Angeles Coliseum. We have buildings, even in, in our uh, Richmond capital, Roman columns, D.C., Roman columns, everything around the world, the influence of Rome, the long tentacles are still there even to this day. I was in London, go all around London, you see vestiges of the Roman Empire everywhere. Of course, you know, at that point, or back in Roman time, they had advanced all the way up into the middle part of England. They had, they had captured up to Hadrian's Wall and all the areas around the uh, Mediterranean. You still see all the vestiges of the Roman Empire, but not just there, everywhere. We call part of our legislative branch the Senate, which comes again from the Roman Empire. All of these things. And we still adore, I don't, but many non-believers still adore anything that comes out of Rome. Las Vegas loves Rome. Don't they? Caesar's palace. The Venetian. Beautiful time. Again, unless you were a born-again Christian. The world still exalts. It is one of Satan's masterpieces. Jesus, understand, was born right smack at the beginning of the first emperor of the greatest world's empire, Pax Romana, 
Roman peace, all of these things, slipping into Bethlehem under the nose of all of it will come the Messiah. Now, by contemporary standards, contemporary in those days, again, Augustus, Caesar Augustus was rather shrewd and he was smart, he was sophisticated. He wasn't afraid to use a little cruelty and power, but he kept it on reserve and didn't use it unless he had to. For the most part, he was able to manipulate and control people by policy, by precedent, by understanding how to keep his adversaries calmed down, his constituents calm. He understood the delicate balance of really kind of control with full authority but at the same time, empower people to do his work for him. Make them look like the bad guy. This is, Caesar Augustus was very adept at this. He was, um, compared to people in his own time or other contemporaries, he was somewhat of a benevolent dictator in that respect. By contemporary standards, living under his rule would certainly be preferable than later Roman emperors Nero, Caligula, some of these others that would be horrible and absolute monsters. But don't be under, misunderstood. This was no man that loved God, and this was no man that God approved of. This first emperor worshipped and promoted Roman gods, loved the Roman gods, promoted the Roman god. He himself allowed himself to be worshipped. Caesar Augustus allowed people to worship him. He enjoyed the violence of the gladiator games as amusement, as did all of the ruling class of Rome. Can you imagine a society degrading to that place where, for sport, the emperor and all of the ruling class, and of course the low class were allowed to come as well, but they had to sit up in the nosebleed seats and watch people kill each other or watch animals tear people to pieces and stuff in the gladiator games. It would later, uh, later when, after the apostles went out and there was the uh, advance of the church, later, instead of just gladiators going against each other, which were usually slaves at the beginning, it ended up being others uh, involved as well. But eventually, you would end up having Christians thrown in there just for sport. But at the time of Augustus, that hadn't happened yet, but they still enjoyed the wonderful, a good old leisurely gladiator game, watching people kill each other for sport. This all took place. He didn't, by the way, he didn't create that. It was already there when he came into power, but he certainly didn't stop it, and he allowed it, and he enjoyed it himself, along with his paganism, his idolatry, the worship of himself. He was married three times, and yes, as I mentioned, when cruelty was needed, he wasn't afraid to dole it out as needed. He still allowed crucifixions to take place. And all that was done to keep peace. Isn't that beautiful? Pax Romana. A little crucifixion here or there is necessary at times for the greater good of everyone else. And if we strike enough fear into people, they'll all stay calm. And they'll understand that Rome is in power. Hey, you can have circus, you can have entertainment, you can have fun, you can have pleasure, you can have the gods, you can have all the riches of this world, 
but don't buck Caesar. Understand that. Everyone understood. Everyone in Rome understood. Everyone in the empire knew what Caesar says you do. This man that was a little weakling had a, risen to a high stake, much like an Adolf Hitler in many respects. He would allow a man as wicked, think about again, if somebody tries to tell you, no, Caesar was a benevolent man. Someone that doesn't understand really the full context might actually say that to you. He was a benevolent man, but he would allow even someone like as ruthless and wicked and vile as Herod the Great not only to rule in the Roman Empire, but he would give Herod more land and more power. Who a man's friends are, who a man honors, is what he really believes in. True? What a person really honors and what they really do, not what they always say, but what they really do, is what they honor. He gave Herod additional land, additional power. Herod, of course, plays a prominent role in Matthew chapter 2, which we won't delve into today, when the Magi come from the east to find the newborn Messiah. And Herod says he also wants to worship Jesus. He was a liar, wasn't he? He would show how ruthless he was by murdering everyone under the age of two, the baby boys under the age of two, a throwback to Pharaoh in the days of Moses. Absolute power corrupts, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Absolute power corrupts. Satan used Herod to attempt to kill Jesus from the outset, but of course Satan's plan failed. Herod failed. The Lord obviously knew exactly what was coming, and Jesus was taken by this, the, the leading of the Spirit down into Egypt. Herod, by the way, even though Herod was ruthless, he still, you know, he was subordinate to Caesar Augustus. Caesar's at the top, right? Caesar's at the top, and Caesar appointed other kings for different regions. Herod was one of the kings who had great authority in the region of Judea, but he still answered to Caesar. And he was afraid of Caesar, too as everyone was once he had regained full power. But Herod, as ruthless as he was, was also a flattering chameleon. He curried Augustus' favor by switching alliance from Mark Antony. You ever heard of him? Remember, he was with Cleopatra, and uh, he had had control of Egypt and other parts uh, before there was the consolidation of power. But Herod had used to be a close friend of Mark Antony, but he realized that Antony was going to lose, so he switched allegiance over to Caesar Augustus. He would even name the city of Caesarea, which uh, we got to visit uh, earlier this year and tour that whole area. He named Caesarea after Caesar Augustus, and he dedicated a temple there in his name. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, so why do we need to know all this? I don't know if need is the right word, but it'll be more beneficial to understand the background of these things because it all happened. This, is the, this would be like if, it, if Christ were to come in our time, we would paint the same picture. What, what did the world look like right now? But it's significant. The reason I mention all this, for the one reason, is going back to Luke chapter 1, verse 4, that ye may know the certainty of these things that you can understand the certainty that Luke mentions things that line up exactly with history. 
that Luke knew exactly who was in power, exactly who was in authority, exactly what the conditions of the world were like, and exactly why Joseph and Mary had to leave, because Caesar said, go, everyone had to go. Additionally, because the prophecies, understand this, the prophecies of Emmanuel's first coming parallel the prophecies of his second coming. How many knew that? The prophecies of his first company will parallel the prophecies of his second coming. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. This isn't normally the nativity message you may be used to. But I don't want to share things that maybe you've always known though we don't want to lose any appreciation for the things that are known because they're the most glorious. But they'll be even more glorious when you see the big picture. When you understand all the background and all the backdrop that God, that Jesus did not come to Bethlehem at this time that God just kind of like, well, I wonder when, I wonder when we should, wonder when we, Holy Spirit, when should we send the Messiah? I don't know, just pick a time. It was exact. It was precise. Do you understand that? This was exactly God's design time before time and space that Jesus would come at the beginning of the first emperor of Rome, the world's great empire, to start off. Jesus would coincide, and at the same time, Augustus and Jesus would be on the earth simultaneously. Take a look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, I'm turning myself there. Daniel chapter 2, look at verse, start it in verse 40. Starting verse 40. Daniel explains the dream of Nebuchadnezzar here. We don't have time to go into the whole dream, but let's just see what Daniel uh, explains around this dream, its prophetic importance. Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, the kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Everyone know, does everyone know who this is, this kingdom? This is Rome. This is the Roman Empire. The first of the, the golden head, that would be Babylon, then the chest, then comes Persia, then comes Greece, then comes Rome. Alexander the Great, of course, would, would lead the Greco, uh, the Greco armies, and that would be the third. But the fourth kingdom, this fourth kingdom, would be like iron, strong as iron. And this fourth kingdom would be cr more cruel than the others. It would shatter everything in its path and rule with an iron fist. Verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly the potter's clay, partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume 
all the kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So what does all that mean? Well, there's a final kingdom that comes out of the Roman kingdom. Remember I mentioned that the tentacles of the Roman Empire still touch us even to this day. It's in our vernacular, it's in our law, it's in our government, it's in even today's information superhighway, again, kind of mirrors that Rome built the road system, that everything led to Rome, everything leads to knowledge, information, the glorification of man, all of those things. The final extension of the Roman Empire has a gap, but when it comes back, it will be another kingdom cobbled together with both iron and ceramic and clay, treaties, policies, nations that agree to work together, but also deep-seated have some of their own agenda and own intentions. Yielding power to a centralized king, much like Herod did. Herod yielded his power to who? Caesar. But there will become a kingdom that's a revived version of the Roman Empire where ten kingdoms will give their authority to one king until the king of king crushes all those kings, including the Antichrist at the top. And so Jesus comes at the beginning of the official beginning of the emperor, the first emperor of Rome, of the great Roman Empire, Pax Romana, time of peace. Jesus would later in his life, just before going to the cross, another Roman leader by the name of Pilate, another one that had a lot of authority, but again, he answered to Caesar as well. At that time, Caesar Tiberius, because Caesar Augustus would have not been alive by that point. But Pilate would ask Jesus about his kingdom, and Jesus would say that his kingdom is not of this world. Just like Daniel 2, the kingdom from heaven would shatter the world's kingdoms. And Pilate would even say, are you a king? And Jesus said, you've said rightly that I am a king. Jesus is the king that will take precedent, take control, take authority over all the kings. And so while Emperor Augustus is sitting on the throne of this new fledging empire that would be ruling the world with an iron fist, that would be later continued by a future antichrist, God was about to set forth and send his king into the world. While at the same time, Satan is presenting his counterfeit kingdom, his counterfeit king to the world And just as Augustus would have a name that means exalted, well, Jesus truly is exalted. And he doesn't have to give the name to himself. He is given a name above every name by his Father. And unlike Augustus, who might have thought he was great, Jesus really is. It says, and remember the angel Gabriel said, he will be great, right? We see the parallel. Augustus named himself son of the divine, but Jesus the son of God. 
Pax Romana is Roman peace, but Jesus is the true giver of real peace, and He doesn't crucify people and enslave people. He sets men free. Amen? It's not a quasi-Roman peace built initially on aggression and greed. No, no, Jesus is truly worthy of worship. He's sinless. He's perfect. He doesn't have to set himself up to be a God, little g. He is God of gods, King of kings. This all takes place under the rule of Emperor Augustus, or Caesar Augustus. A little less is known about Quirinius. In verse 2, Quirinius was governing Syria. But we do know that a fragment of stone was found in Tivoli, near Rome, that tells us a governor that twice served in Syria and Phoenicia during the reign of Augustus, tells us that he ruled in the reign of Augustus, so we can narrow the time very clearly, ruled twice there, and it seems to clearly fit Quirinius, who was most likely a military governor under Caesar Augustus. In verse 4, we see that Joseph comes up from Galilee again. Uh, this, this command goes out. It's not optional. What if I don't want to do the census? You want to live? I think I'll do the census after all. So he heads from Galilee. Joseph, a simple carpenter. He has no great position. He's not in the Roman Senate. He's not in the ruling class. A simple carpenter. But like Mary, he was of the lineage of King David. You know, you and I, may be nothing to the world. You may not be on the front of People Magazine or ESPN The Mag or the Wall Street Journal, but if you have Jesus as your father, you now have royal blood from him. Amen? Joseph had the royal blood of David, who was a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? Boy, what a different King David was than Caesar Augustus or King Herod. And he heads... Down, or uh, well, <laughs> geographically down, but the scriptures, look what it says here. It says he went up from Galilee. I remember the first time I started reading the Bible uh, back in 1995, and I would read this. I love maps. I've loved them since I was a kid. I like globes. I like geography. So when I would read that, I was like, hold on a second. Galilee's not up to Jerusalem. That would be going down to Jerusalem. But the way that the Bible writers write is they speak in terms of elevation. Galilee sits at a lower elevation, so you go up to Judea. Up. At least from the perspective of you're going higher up in height. Not north-south, but elevation. And the Bible is always correct on this. Every time you see it, it'll be right. He goes up from Galilee into Judea, and we had the chance to, when we were touring all over Israel, you, you can clearly tell when you've come out, up out of lower Galilee, up into Judea. Now, Nazareth itself is not near as low as like the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is below sea level, but Nazareth is, is actually on a hill. It's, it's higher up. Nazareth is, sits at six, uh, 1,653 feet above sea level, but Bethlehem because God knows geography too. Bethlehem 
sits at 2,550 feet, about 100 feet higher even than Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is about five miles north. Bethlehem, you travel about five miles south, and you're still going up in elevation till you get to Bethlehem, which is about 2,550 feet above sea level. So truly, if you're going from Nazareth, elevation-wise, you're going up to Bethlehem. Let's look at the delivery here. We look at the decree that's gone out. We now, the beautiful part. The backdrop's kind of ugly, isn't it? Herod, Caesar, the wickedness of the Roman Empire. But in the backdrop of all of the filth of the world and all of Satan's counterfeit leaders and his counterfeit antichrist comes this beautiful delivery in verses 6 and 7. So it was that while they were there and the days were completed for her to be delivered, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It says the days were completed. In Galatians 4.4, 4, it says this. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, the whole world was under the law. And you don't want to be under the law when you stand before God, do you? You want to be under grace, under the new covenant, under the blood of Jesus. But when the fullness of time had come, again, understanding that the time was very specific. 400 years of silence. Malachi chapter 4 finishes up the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Then there's 400 years of silence. And exactly at the beginning of the major mighty Roman Empire... The king of kings is born when Caesar is setting up the rule of the world. The ruler of the world is born, and he doesn't know it. And Herod doesn't know it. Herod doesn't find out till one to two years later. And he still doesn't understand it. Although he understood the prophecies that, that a ruler would come out of, the tribe of, uh, or out of the tribe of Judah from the household lineage of David, but this delivery, fullness of time, it takes place. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. I know that you know this passage, but it's good that we look at it directly, at least for this morning. Turn back to Isaiah 9. Because what's taking place here, the fullness of time, the days being completed, the household and lineage of David, God is bringing prophecies, Kings, rulers, shepherds, angels, Holy Spirit. Everything converges the entire course of eternity and history converges at little old Bethlehem. Isn't that amazing? Look at Isaiah chapter 9. As the prophet Isaiah prophesied, starting in verse 6, For unto us a child is born. This passage causes a lot of problems for the rabbis that want to refute that Jesus is both the Son of Mary and the Son of God. He's not half man and half God. He's all man and all God. Amen? 
Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. Born, physically born. Not just appears, born. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. Given by who? The Father. John 3, 16. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Thank the Lord it's not the Roman government. Or the U.S. government or the Chinese government, or the Russian government, or the Greco, or the Babylonian, or any other government. But the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Can't say that about many leaders, huh? Counselor. He would counsel you and me, lowly people, high people, middle people, mighty God. This child would also be mighty God. Everlasting Father. Think of all the people that don't have a father or don't know their father. We'll, we'll be in the juvenile correction facility tonight. Many of them have never met their dad. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Pax Romana. Roman Peace. Prince of Peace. Real Peace. The world always has a counterfeit, doesn't it? A few days from now, some people will get a little peace from their brand new tablet device. Better than the one they got last year. Faster. Holds more songs. It's prettier. It's lighter. It's more aerodynamic. It has a better Wi-Fi connection. They'll get a little peace from the beautiful watch they get. But how long does it last? Not long, huh? It doesn't last long. Satan has, ever since the Garden of Eden, has been trying to perpetuate a false peace and get, this is going to, I know that the first 10,000 things I gave you didn't work. This one will work. And people buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Really? This one? This one will work. This one will. I know that the other models I gave you didn't work, but this one will work. They don't even work mechanically, do they? Help desk support. 1-800 number. You, everyone here says you think you're the only person this thing has ever broken on. You're not. The fact that you all think that, we're all in the same boat. The prince of the power of the air versus the prince of peace. Look at verse 7. Remember one of the names of Augustus means increase? Look at the name, 7. Of the increase of his government and peace. Augustus, his increase was power, prestige, position. Jesus is peace. The whole world wants peace. They got their coexist bumper stickers. They got all this stuff. World peace and visualize world peace and all the other things. None of it. None of it ever increases. Do we have more peace in the world right now? Go to Syria. Go to Egypt. Go to Iran. All over the world. But the increase of his government, the peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of who? David. He must be of the household and lineage of David. He must be born 
as a child, but he must come from the seed of David and to rule over his kingdom and order it and establish it with judgment. Yeah, there'll be judgment. And justice. Judgment will be given to all those who chose another king. Isn't that sad? A lot of people are choosing another king. Usually, well, at the end of the day, it's always everybody. They choose the king of their own heart. True? My way. Frank Sinatra's greatest song. What, not his greatest, one of his great songs. I did it my way, right? My way doesn't get you far the second you die, does it? Doesn't get you anywhere. Oh, it'll get you a lot of popularity with men because you are a man's man. You're the big shot. You do it your way. But the second you die, your way is over. Every kneel bow, every tongue confess of his kingdom, he'll order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Not the Third Reich that fell away, not the Roman Empire that you know, had a long-lasting reign but faded, and even as people try and revive it. Do you know that there's people right now, right now, in high authority positions that actually have proposed a revival of the Roman Empire? They even use the terminology, a revival of the Roman Empire, because in their minds, they believe it could finally accomplish world peace. Everybody doing as they're told to do, supposed to do, taking care. You, you need a good Augustus to rule and reign. But when Jesus takes control from that time forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the host of heaven, the angelic host that proclaimed him will perform it. Let's look at this final section, the declarations. Go back to Luke chapter 2. We see the delivery, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the ruler of Israel, the promised one, ultimately the King of Kings. He comes into the world. He has no power, no position, born as a baby, there in a feeding trough. There was no room for Jesus anywhere. No one could make room for him. If it had been Herod or Caesar, they would have vacated the whole town to make room for their entourage, wouldn't they? If it was one of their babies. But the Jewish carpenter and his wife, that no one knew who they were, the creator of the universe is born that night and he's put in a feeding trough. The humility of Jesus is hard to grasp. We can, we can look at it from every fa fa phase of his life. And now who would leave the throne of heaven but the humble Son of God to allow his diapers to be changed? To be born in laying in hay. You know, you look at the humility of Christ and it's amazing. If you, I mean, really, I don't have the time to go into it. If you really stop to try and think through it, that God would actually leave that position of full authority of the universe and to come down and to be in a helpless position to take him all the way to the cross. No wonder the angels were rejoicing. 
No wonder they had this proclamation, if you're taking notes, under the declarations. Now there was the same, in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now I know that many scholars believe that Jesus was probably not born on December the 25th. Almost all the weight of Evans would agree with that point. One of that being that uh, the colder temperatures wouldn't have come uh, or the colder temperatures would already be there in Jerusalem. You saw that the snow that Jerusalem just got a couple of weeks ago, even though that was an unprecedented amount, Jerusalem is cold this time of year, by this time of year. <clears throat> and Bethlehem, of course, only five miles south of Jerusalem and even at a higher elevation. Uh, Bethlehem, same, same relative temperature this time of year. And so the flocks were out there probably September, October, somewhere in that range. Um, but nevertheless, as these shepherds are out there watching their flocks, behold, an angel of the Lord stands before them. And the Shekinah, or the glory of Adonai, or the Lord, shines round about them, and they were greatly afraid. I guess they were. This doesn't happen any other night that you're out there watching sheep. I'm sure they were used to seeing the stars and, and the, the, the heavenly host of stars, but not an angel appearing to them and speaking directly to them. But as angels do throughout the Bible, they say, or this angel says, do not be afraid. Why? Because we're bringing you good news. We're bringing you the best news the world has ever heard. These men that lived under the authority of wicked Herod, these men that lived under the authority of Caesar Augustus. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, even the slaves, even the low-class people, like you shepherds. Shepherds were considered low, low class. They didn't make much money. They were completely considered unskilled workers. Anybody could be a shepherd was the thought of the arist uh, aristocrats. All you needed was a half a brain and a staff. That was their thinking. That wasn't God's thinking, right? <coughs> their thinking. They come to these lowly shepherds and they give this great news. These lowly esteemed men, I'm reminded the prideful, puffed-up man that thinks if you're going to come to somebody, you deliver the good news, the big news, the big-time information to the big shots. But God doesn't. He's never worried about impressing man. Nor is God ever worried about convincing you he's true and you're not true. You notice that? He doesn't send Gabriel or a host to heaven to Caesar Augustus and Herod does he? He sends them to men that they wouldn't care about, believe, or even give a second thought to, and therefore it happens somewhat in a vacuum, out in a field, and these are the guys, the only ones to see it, and the rest of us are left to believe their witness, amen? We're left to believe their witness, but God has done this a lot, hasn't he? My daughters were Asking me, what do you think, Dad, why do you think, uh, why, why shepherds? Why shepherds? And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, Abraham was a shepherd. 
Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that God would come to shepherds. Abraham, first covenant. Moses, the law. David, the throne. All three men were shepherds. Is that a coincidence? That all three men were shepherds and that Jesus would be called the true and faithful shepherd? I don't think so. Isaiah 40, verses 10 through 11. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead them who are with his young. Jesus defies all the rulers that have ever been. He comes as a baby. He'll be a shepherd. They would never want, none of the rulers in the world that had any kind of power prestige would ever have wanted to be known as a shepherd. The Egyptian pharaohs considered that the lowest of low. But that's the men God chose. Abraham, Moses, David, Yeshua. Shepherd, 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 shepherd. So there at the throne of God, who shall we announce this to? Maybe even the angel said, why not shepherds? Every great man you've ever produced or the greatest of men you have always called shepherds. Now, I don't know if that took place in heaven. I'm just saying that the angels understand that God had put a high value on calling these low shepherd positions because it modeled what Jesus does with us. We're a bunch of helpless little lambs, right, that he picks up and cleans off, and he takes care of. The angel goes on with this great declaration. The angel says, do not be afraid, for there is born, in verse 11, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Savior means deliverer or preserver. Oshia in the Hebrew, a deliverer who is Christ the Lord. Messiah, Christ and Messiah are synonyms. Messiah, the anointed, a Savior who is the anointed power of God. They would have thought Isaiah 9, 6. They would have thought the prophecies. Everything we heard about Messiah, we're hearing the announcement of it. But why Bethlehem? And boy, would they be shocked when they got to the birthing place. They come. But the angel says, Now, here's the deal. Here's how you're going to find him. It's going to be the opposite place that most people think. You're going to have to go to a a stable or it's going to be a cave. It probably was a cave uh, carved out. And he'll be in a feeding trough. What? Well, that should be easy to find because how many babies are going to be put in a feeding trough? And they go and they find him exactly... The angels of heavenly hosts proclaim glory to God in the highest on earth. Where's that word again? Peace. True peace. Not Roman peace. True peace. Not today's peace. Jesus said it this way. He goes, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Jesus was always paralleling that the world tries to present peace, and it's a lie. He says, I give the real peace. I'm the prince of peace. 
I'm the giver of peace. The angels said the same thing. They say, glory to God because he's bringing you peace. And the peace is in his offering and his sacrifice and his son. So it was when the angels had gone away that they did as they were told, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass or the fullness of time. The Lord has made it known to us. They came with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known. They went and saw him. They made widely known the things that were told. Are you making widely known the things of Jesus? Or barely known? Yeah, I did witness to someone four years ago. Are you making it widely known? Do people know that this is great news because they've heard you, they see it in your life? Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, there it is again, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Are we like these shepherds? That we're so blown away by the news we've been given, by the Savior we've seen face to face. Have you seen him face to face in salvation that you want to proclaim it? And all those who heard marveled. And Mary kept mulling them over in her heart, thinking about them. Do you ponder the things of the Lord in your heart, or are we pondering worthless things? Things that really don't bring peace. Even a Christian, you can be saved and be robbed of peace by mulling things over that have nothing to do with the Lord. And they will rob you of peace. But then when you mull over the things of the Lord, you'll make widely known His peace. That's how it works. In His presence, there is great peace. Jesus indeed, among the backdrop of a wicked world, among the backdrop of, yes, in many standards, the world's greatest earthly empire and connected to the the final wicked empire to come in that backdrop the messiah is born genuine peace the true savior the true king of kings the true lord of lords let's bow together in prayer